how do you follow that, you know? I mean, isn't that what it's all about, seeing people's lives changed? And it's so true. We uh, look in the Bible today at Exodus chapter 33, a little bit of our Christian history as we looked back on our American history just a few moments ago. And we thank those, again, who are, are serving today, uh, even today, in our uh, first responders. But as we look back in the Bible, I want us to look at something that I'm historically not that good at, okay? That's, that sh- I shouldn't have, that's a hanging proverb or whatever, right? Adverb, whatever. I'm not that good. I, in fact, if you were to ask me, what do you struggle with among the disciplines of the Christian life more than anything else? I, I would not say this now, but through the years, I've had to work on something that was very unnatural, I felt like, for me, and that was worship. And uh, I wasn't raised where, in a denomination, a church, where you raised your hands or sang very much. And you certainly didn't, didn't laugh, clap, anything like that, you know. That was, you know, if you did more of a courtesy, you know what a courtesy laugh is, right? I mean, we, got, we gave the preachers a courtesy laugh. Somebody give me a courtesy laugh. Yeah, you know, just, you know, we don't want the pastor to be embarrassed, so we'll say something. But it's something that I, I struggle with. In fact, I believe since the fall, we have struggled with our worship, and we struggle still. When asked the question among those who did not attend church on any kind of basis whatsoever, the question was asked, what would it take for you to visit a church, to go to a church. And the number one answer, there were many answers, but the number one answer was, if I could find a church that would help me have an encounter with God that would permeate and affect the rest of my life, I would go to that church. And as we look at this this morning, we do have difficulty with making that connection to God, that encounter with God. And so I'm going to look at it in a more broad perspective this morning, and I want to look at some foundational things to worship as well. In fact, we're going to be looking at what is worship, why worship, how to worship a little bit, and then what is the goal of it all. And as we look at Exodus chapter 33, we find that the Israelites, a little history lesson, have left the land of Egypt. They've gone across the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea. You know, you've seen that movie, Uh, parting of the Red Sea. And they've come on over to dry land. Now was the time for God to give them instruction. Not only where to do, what to do and where to go, but also about him. What do we require to really please him? So he gave them the law. Exodus chapter 19, we find that Moses went up to Mount Sinai and spent a long time there. In fact, longer than what anybody was expecting. He got the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. And then following chapters, he got all the law that God wanted the nation of Israel to have. Then when he came down off the mountain, he found something. And that is while he was gone, the people became very impatient. They built a golden calf, meaning that they wanted to go back to Egypt. They just wanted to go back to slavery. Anything but dying out in the wilderness. They were fearful. They were panicking. They didn't really have a relationship with God the way Moses had a relationship with God. And so when that happened, God came down, or rather Moses came down off the mountain and he saw what was happening. He, in his anger, see everybody has something that they struggle with. Moses struggled with anger. And he took the tablets and he broke them all. And now it was time to get some, some more tablets, some more law. 
We'll come back to that in just a moment. But as he was doing that, we find in these chapters, we find worship. Now, we can find a lot of different things in these chapters because anytime in the Old Testament in particular, even in the book of Acts, you have a narrative, you have a story. There are many things that you can gather from that story. I want to concentrate on the encounter with God this morning. As we look at Exodus 33, beginning on verse 1, we'll read, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. And the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but listen to this, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people, stubborn people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. And the Lord said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up with you, I would consume you now. So now take off your ornaments, which is a sign of their security. This is all the, the gifts they received from Egypt just to leave. That Egyptians just wanted them to go with all the plagues happening there. And because of that, he said, take them off. And he says in verse 7, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and it called it to the tent meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which is outside the camp. Now, this tent was not the tabernacle. This is something that Moses put up occasionally because he needed to be alone with God. Whenever Moses went out into the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, which is not only a symbol for God, but also you think about a cloud hides the sun. This is the way for God to hide his glory from the people because they couldn't stand to look upon him face to face. It says, and when he would speak to Moses, when all the people saw the pillar of standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up, worship each to his, in his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses, face to face, as a man speaks to a friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Verse 14, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest, says the Lord. And Moses said, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. What do we learn from this? First of all, we gotta ask ourselves the question, this, with this encounter with God, what is worship? Now, Tim Keller uh, defines it this way, and I'll paraphrase it a little bit. Worship is the act of assigning value to something or someone in a way that permeates and affects their entire being. So it's adding value to something. And it's really more determining the value of something. For example, if you and I were to um, think about the word worship for just a moment, I want to bring a Hebrew definition in just a moment, but even the old English word means worth-ship. It's assigning worth to something. And so really, technically, if on, on uh, language terms outside the Bible, because the language of the Bible was the language back then, whether it was in the Bible or not, if someone were to give you a house appraisal and you would think your house is worth, we'll say, $300,000, 
but hey, wow, inflation's taken off and whatever, and, and now it's worth $400,000. Wow, that's really something. But that probably wouldn't change your life because chances are you're not moving and to sell a $400,000 home, where would you live? I mean, you couldn't buy anywhere because every other price has gone up as well. So it's good news, but it's not news that's really going to change you. But if you were to be, well, like me, I've got a, a garage full of a junk. Uh, basically, uh, some of it's for my kids, you know. Used to live, live there, and we've got things in boxes, baseballs and football. I have, I have autographed stuff in there. You know, my whole baseball team that I coached uh, signed a ball. Suppose, though, I, I reached in there and found a ball, and I said, you know, I've always wondered about this ball. It's signed by three guys, some guy named Babe, and another Italian guy named Joe. I wonder how much this, this ball is worth. So I take it down and get an appraisal of it. And the guy looks at it, and he, his eyes get real big. He gets out his magnifying glass. He studies the sig three signatures. He says, you know, this, he says, Dwayne, this may be the only ball in history that's ever been signed by Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, and Joe DiMaggio all at the same time. Now, some of you that are younger, these are famous people. All right? Just to let you know. In fact, a Babe Ruth baseball, I think, sold for, you know, several million dollars one time. And so he looks at it and he says, this, this ball is worth at least a million dollars, probably more. Now, that would change the way I act. I wouldn't go home and just say, well, that was nice to know and just throw it back in the box in the garage, would I? No, it would change the way I treated that baseball because it was appraised. I recognized the value. Myself, I put value on it. And therefore, it changed my life. Now, when you think about what was happening to the Israelites, the chances are you look and you say, well, the question that I would have, did it change? Let me give you one more thing. Maybe this will, uh, for some of you young couples, you would identify with this a little bit more. But we know that primarily, in general, men will think, well, my wife's pregnant. Hey, I'm looking forward to having a baby. Now, I was all about it because I, I had a dream of being, you know, one of my goals was to be a dad. But some guys were like, oh, well, that's great. That's wonderful. I've got to work a little bit more, do a little bit more. But it's okay. Once that baby's born, it's right there in your arms. Dad, your life has changed forever. Right? Sure it is. You look and suddenly you become, maybe you go from being a, a lazy bum or whatever to really being a workaholic. Your life changes because of the encounter that you've had with your child. Now, worship assigning worth. The Hebrew word begins, it talks about being a weight. Worship, you put weight on something. Something is strong. Something has substance. You recognize that and you put your weight, your trust in that. And therefore, it changes the way you act. The baby's born. You put, not only is a baby's life important, but you put importance on that baby because it's yours. And it has weight to it substance to it and therefore it changes how you feel about life and how you how you respond 85 percent of americans believe that god exists of some type but are they putting weight on it do they put weight on him to where it really affects their life now how do you get in let, let me just give you one quote by a great writer a.w tozer why did christ come why was he conceived why was he born why was he crucified? Why did he rise again? 
Why is he now at the right hand of the Father? The answer, he says, to all these questions is this. In order that he might make worshipers out of rebels, in order that he might restore us again to the place of worship we knew when we were first created. You see, when we are worshiping God, we are saying to God, I'm back, I'm back to where I belong. I'm back to my original design. And how do you get there? By trusting Christ as your Savior and Lord. That's the very first step. In fact, at the end of this message, I'm going to give you a chance, an opportunity to do that. But first, I want us to see also this morning, as we look at this, why worship? Why do that? I mean, after all, that's a lot of intentionality about that. A lot of it. And so let's look once again at verse 2. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, etc. Go flowing with the land of milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. I'm going to bless you, but I will not go with you. That's sad. But isn't that kind of the American way? Well, this is a perfect religion for America today and maybe even the entire world. I mean, here's a situation where you pray the prayer of Jabez or whatever, and God, God's going to bless you, got a guarantee of a blessing maybe in your life, but you don't have to do anything. You don't have to go to church. You don't have to read the Bible. You don't have to be intentional with your prayer life. God's just going to automatically just give you anything. I mean, my goodness, this would be like the dream of the American church, but it was not acceptable to the people of Israel. Now, why worship God? Why do that? Number one, right off the bat, is that you're going to worship something. You worship something. Somebody says, no, I don't think I'm going to worship God, really, but I'm not going to worship anything. I'm just not a worshiper. No, you aren't a worshiper. Everyone is a worshiper. Something is on the throne of your life. Someone is on the throne of your life. And as John Maxwell has said, we choose our master. Then we put confidence in that master. And once we put faith and confidence in that master, that master rules our life. It controls our life. I, um, I'm not, um, a wa- I don't watch the Harry Potter movies and read the books. Just not, you know, I don't have young kids anymore. And so uh, another pastor that does have younger kids, I guess, tells a story that happens in the first movie of Harry Potter. And Harry comes across a mirror. He finds this mirror called uh, the Mirror of Erised. And it's just really basically desire spelled backwards. And he looks into the mirror. And keep in mind, Harry Potter's parents died when he was very young. And so when he looks into the mirror, he sees himself playing with his parents. And his parents are in the mirror. And and he's just overwhelmed by it. He calls his best friend, Ron. He says, Ron, come, look, my parents are in this mirror. And Ron looks at it. He didn't see Harry's parents at all. He sees himself as a great athlete and a real hero. And so they call their mentor in and say, we don't understand. I, I see my parents. Ron sees uh, athletics going on, him right in the midst of it. He said, what's this all about? And his mentor said, this mirror shows what you desire most in life. As you look into the mirror, you see exactly what you want more than any other thing in the world. So my question to you today is if you were to look in that kind of mirror, what would it show? Would it show you playing with God? Would it show you being with God, being with Jesus, 
or is it something else? You see, we all worship something. Now, here is point number two. It builds on the first. Why does it matter that we worship God? Because all other gods have no weight. They are unstable. Somebody says, well, what's on my throne? I guess I look into desire. I would become a great success in whatever I'm doing. Not only that, but I'd have a lot of money. I can see myself on that beautiful island. You know in the movies when the, the helicopter or whatever kind of pulls back and the camera pulls back and it sees this beautiful, yeah, I'd see all that. That's unstable. The economy, we know, is unstable. It's unstable in the world. It's unstable here. What about your children? Oh, my children are on the throne of my life. Very unstable. I mean, it is. You just don't know what, what's going to happen, how the rest of the world is going to affect your, your children. You just don't know that. There's an unstable situation. The same with grandchildren. What about, you say, well, I guess, I guess I'd look in the mirror and I said, you know, they're, they're, I am being young. That's what I want. I want. I want to be young all my life. You know that youth is fleeting. You know that looks are unstable and fleeting. Anything you put your trust in, anything ex except for God has no weight. There's no way that your life can be stable when you trust in those things. So why worship God? Well, you worship something. There's no other gods that you have is going to bring you the thrill and the joy in your life. Listen to Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life and your presence the presence of God in our life, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Listen, the key, the key to overcoming your trials and having joy in your trials is praise. Thanksgiving and praise are like cousins of one another. You keep thanking God, keep thanking God, keep thanking God for what he's doing, and you will overcome many of the, the down moments of your life, but praise, lifting up your praise to God, can be overwhelming in your life. To worship God, to place him first in your life is the key to really overcoming the depression and the downness of life, the criticisms of life, the problems of life, adversities of life. It's the key. And so how do you do it? How do you worship God? Let's look at kind of the practice of it because certainly it begins really in community. Everywhere in the Bible, we find worship one way or another, we're going to find a group together doing it. Acts chapter 2, we talked about that. Psalm 95 is probably the best psalm on worship there is. And I preached on that before. And one thing I noticed right off the bat, it's always we, 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 we. Us. It's together. It's a corporate body joining together. Hebrews 10.25 again says this. Not neglecting to meet together, as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Meet together. Now let me elaborate a little bit on what we've said before about this. And let me just say that without meeting together and worshiping together, putting God first in our life together, we can never know God. Not completely. We get to, see, there's no way that I can experience all the experiences of life for me to get to know myself before God and me to get to know God as well without dealing with other people's problems around me and other people's praises around me and thanksgivings around me. I have to have those relationships in order for them to reveal my blind spots in my life where I'm 
falling short in my relationship with God, in my walk with God, the next steps that I need to take, the next changes I need to make. And so there's no way to really see that. And by the way, the more diverse the community, the more you can know God. We're talking about age, yes. Not just one age church, not just a one race church, not just a one uh, country church, but the more you are diverse, the more you can see how God is working in other people's lives and other people's cultures and other people's societies as well. We need one another. So what are the elements of all this as we come to a community together? What are the elements here in our service today? The three main ones, first of all, is our praise and direction to God. Our singing, praising, praying, that's what the Psalms are all about. All of those Psalms are really songs sung to God. And by the way, the words are just a lot more important than the tune, all right? We can sing all kinds of varieties of tunes, of music, but the words that we say to God is the real praise. Now, let me give you another example of this. It's like um, my witness. When I share the gospel with someone, it's all about the words. It's all about the gospel message. Those are the words, but the music is the life that I live behind it. It's important because if they know me and I'm sharing the gospel and I don't live that gospel, they're not going to listen. So like the music, it puts things in context, but it's the words that I proclaim to God. We can look and we can see praise um, expressing our love expressing our adoration. And you say, well, I, I just don't sing, and many people don't. You know, I can't. I was thinking just as I was preparing this message, how often do I sing outside of church? Not that often. And you're probably the same way. But this is a time of lifting our voices as a corporate body to the Lord Jesus Christ and telling how much he's worth to us. And then there's the raising of the hand. You can't, you can't do one, clap your hands. You can't, you feel like I'm not comfortable raising my hands. Don't raise your hand. If you're not comfortable clapping, do, don't do that. But pray as I did for years. God, I'd like to be able to, to express myself in various ways. And I pray for that. I pray for the freedom to do that. Nothing wrong with that at all. But at least lifting up our voices says to God, these are the words that I really mean in our heart, my heart. And I'm lifting up and adoring you. Now, the next thing we do, in fact, we spend more time on this than anything else. That is preaching. And uh, why? Well, because the pastor is the leader and he gets to do what he wants. No, that's not it. You know, not it at all. We find in chapter 34 that God comes right back and gives them a law again. Now, he's already done it once. What's the point in doing it again? In fact, it seems like he's putting a big emphasis on this whole word of God thing. We find that in the book of Deuteronomy right before the book of Joshua where they enter into the promised land and claim their land. They read over the law again. I mean, they, they gather everyone together and do it as a corporate body. Why? Because without the word, you cannot know the God that you're worshiping. The Bible gives us, the Bible, Old Testament gives us history New Testament tells us all about Jesus Christ, the living Son of God. This Bible gives us the knowledge of who God is. Now, I know that a lot of people here, perhaps, are, you're thinking, well, I accept a lot of the Bible. 
You know, I accept some of it, but I don't accept all of it. I, I like the Jesus that's all loving and, and all that. But look in chapter 32. This is eye-opening, I think. He says in verse 33, because they built the golden calf, he says, whoever has sinned against me, says God, I will blot out of my book. Verse 35, then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Well, this is pretty eye-opening, so I don't understand that. about The reason we can't accept it and understand it because we tend to create a God of our own image. I know I've shared that with people before. I say, you know, I think you're taking that out of context or, or maybe you're accepting part of the Bible, but you're not really accepting all. Oh, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that at all. But we tend to do that. Now, there's a danger in that. First of all, when you do that, you're not worshiping the real God. When you do that, that God that you're worshiping cannot change your life. It can't do anything for you. Not only can he not answer prayer because it's, it's, he's not a real God. He's kind of like an idol. But there's nothing you can do to get that God to change you because here's what happens. When you read something in the Bible and it seems like, well, you know, that's just not the way I picture God. I like the loving Jesus and dying on the cross and all that. It's just not how. So what do you do? You change your picture of God. You change who you feel God really is. He doesn't change you. You say, well, no, I'm changing. Man, I used to believe this about God. Now I believe this. And because of that, I'm doing more of this and more of that, not worrying about things. I'm free. All that kind of, you know, all the kind of talk that you hear today. But really what's happening is, look, I can't accept from the Bible the real God. So I'm changing, not changing me. I'm changing my view of God. I'm not changing my life. I still have the same blind spots. I'm changing my view of God. And not only that, I can tell you a third danger on it. And that is, I don't know how you're going to find a community that you can be a part of. Because if you have your individual idea of God, and everybody else in here has their own identity, identification of who God is, then none of us agree on much. And the whole reason we get together is because we agree on Christ and who he is. So where are you going to find your community? Where are you going to find that? You see, the Bible has always been central to all the services that we find in the Old and the New Testament, and it is today because that is how we find out about God. The third element that we have in our service, uh, we do have the Lord's Supper and all that, and I'll preach on that at a different time, but we have response time, a response that says, look, here's what I'm going to do with the message, and we're going to have that today. It's not going to be a public thing, even though I think that's a good thing. And we need to come back to that at some point when COVID is over because that, that not only gives you an opportunity to respond to God's word right then, but all those around you that are seeing, wow, they're seeing this and life is changing. Life, I've seen lives right before me being changed. And with that, we know that we've had, we're having that encounter with a God. So what is the goal to all this? And it brings us back really kind of to the why we ought to do it. But in verse 18, Moses, when he's gone through all this, he said, please show me your glory. Show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness, not my glory, pass before you. I proclaim to you my name, the Lord is, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy to whom I show mercy. 
He says, look, I'm going to walk by you. And verse 23 says, then I'll take my hand. You shall see my back, but not my face cannot be seen. Why? Because the Bible says you can't see the face of God. It would be so powerful that it would kill you. But I want you to notice the progression here. God revealed himself more and more and more. First, Moses saw God's feet. And then he was in his presence. Verse 11 says he was face to face with God. That word panin means in the Hebrew presence. He was in the presence of God. Now I know God's everywhere all at one time, but no, he felt his presence in his life. It was real to him. And then we find that he saw his backside right here in chapter 33. And then finally, in verse 33 of chapter 34, it says, Moses, when he's finished speaking, he put a veil over his face because he had been in the presence of God and shining like God. The light of God was on his face. He had to hide behind the veil. We find the pillar of cloud hiding God's glory like the sun. Clouds hiding the sun. We see a veil also hiding here. We find that God says, and Moses was seeking the glory of God. God, we worship, we worship God and adore him to bring glory to him. And this word glory means to magnify something. That means several different things, but one of the, the keys, it magnifies. If I took a telescope and I began to look at Mars, it would bring that, um, that planet closer to me in a sense. Not really, but it would make it look bigger. Well, let's say I look in a telescope and instead of it looking so small that I couldn't see it with the naked eye, suddenly it looked this big, this big, all right? Kind of like this. Oh, I see Mars now. That's how big Mars is. No, but it does make it bigger. To glorify God, the world could never see God in all of his glory. We cannot see God on this earth in all of his glory, how big and how powerful he really is. But our life, as we live before God, as the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and as we worship God, adore him and praise him and learn from his word and learn more about him, more, learn more about him, ourselves as well, it makes God look bigger than he does now to the rest of the world. And may God look big, bigger in our eyes as well. That's why we can get over our trials. Oh, now God is bigger than my trials. I magnified him. And he looks so much bigger than all my trials that I have. But then, not only do we glorify God, but God shares his glory with us. Remember what Romans 6.23 says? It says in the Bible already, 323, it says, for all of sin and glory and, and come short of the glory of God. We've come short of that glory. Romans 323. Now we're no longer coming short. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus. We can see that he shares his glory with us. This panin, this presence to presence. That's what it means. And Jesus said this in John 17 with his high priestly prayer. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. We can see this this morning in these multitude of baptisms. Didn't you feel the glory of God? When people come forward and give their hearts to Jesus Christ, you feel and sense the glory of God. I remember back in the old Legacy Hall, we call it now, but it was the sanctuary when I came and pastored here. And I remember sitting, we used to have pulpit furniture, you know, that's the old days. 
And uh, instead of worshiping out there with you, we stood up here and, and, and looked um, statesmanlike, I guess. And so um, I was sitting there, and Jay Strack, who's uh, head of uh, Leadership University for Young People, right here in Orlando, was preaching, good friend of mine. And uh, I hadn't been there very long. And I'd seen this happen before, but not, not as when I was a pastor. And he gave the invitation, crusade style, just come forward right now. Meet me down here in the front. And I don't know how many we had. I, I know there were about 50 people in that little building over there. I say little, it seemed about 600. 50 people coming down there. And I said, God, I'm pastoring this church. Look what's happening here. I could barely hold back the tears. I was so touched. Lives being changed right before us. We can see what's going on. I could almost see in the hearts of some of those people that are crying and giving their heart to Jesus Christ, sharing in the glory of God, us being able to experience what Moses himself experienced. Why? Because the veil of the temple was torn in half at the cross. We find Moses here with a veil. But when Jesus died on the cross, the veil was ripped away. Because, dear friends, not only do we share his glory, but we see him when we glorify him as, as beautiful. Not just a utilitarian, not just useful, but wonderful. Wonderful. A wonderful God, just, just for himself. And yeah, there is a difference. Sometimes we treat God as though he's a business partner. Just someone we're doing business with. We just, we go to prayer, we ask, we ask, we ask, we ask. I need you to do this, I need you to do this. Never any praise, never anything, really Thanksgiving. It's sort of like the difference between going out to dinner or lunch, we'll say, with a business partner and your wife. We have two guys on staff here, administrative staff. We go out to lunch sometimes. On Monday, we're sitting there. Well, the first thing we do, even before we order, we grab our notebooks, open them up, say, well, what, what you got for me today? Why are we meeting today? What, what, what do you have? What do you want me to do? And I, I'll share with them what I, want, I need for them to do, and we'll go back and forth for maybe an hour. And you do that. You men, you, you meet, and you don't know why you're meeting. The first thing out of your mouth when you sit down for breakfast or lunch with somebody is, well, what can I do for you? What you're saying is, why in the world am I here? But try that with your wife or your husband. You're sitting down there to dinner. You have a little chit-chat. And you said, now, why are we here? And you pull out your notebook, and she pulls out her notebook. You know, well, you got the kids on Tuesday. I got the kids on Wednesday, and we got dinner here. And no, you don't do that. You have a loving, a beautiful relationship. And you're not sitting there and asking one another to do things. Hopefully, you're kind of praising one another. Oh, your hair looks nice tonight. You wouldn't say that to a business partner, I hope. But instead of saying to God, God, I find you beautiful, wonderful within yourself, we find God is useful because we spend all of our time asking and not praising so how do you get there? Well, you began at the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says the veil in the temple was rent in half, torn in half by the fingers of God. 
that same symbol that was over Moses' face to hide the glory of God, now opened up. We're opened up to the glory of God in our life. And he died there on the cross. And he died for your sins. Yes, we are sinners. Separated from God. And the only way that we can get to heaven is by trusting Jesus Christ. It's our first act of worship as we humble ourselves before the Lord and ask Christ to come in to our life and save us. It's an act of worship. First one we have. And everything's opened up to us. The glory of God as we find God, not as we move through life, not just useful, but beautiful in his own right. Wouldn't you love to get there with that kind of joy? Wouldn't you like to be able to deal with your trials in a different way? Not because the trials necessarily go away, but because you're so filled up with God that the trials are so much smaller than how you see God. It begins by trusting Christ. Would you do that today? Would you come to know him as your Savior and Lord? With heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. And um, no one looking around in the quietness of this time, whether you're here, whether you're watching at home, I would invite you right now to pray this prayer with me silently as I pray aloud. The prayer is not a magical potion. It's just that if you share these requests with me, that they are right for you, and you ask God, God will come in to save you. Pray with me. Lord God, thank you so much for loving me. Thank you for going to the cross and dying there for my sin. I humble myself before you as an act of worship. I know I cannot save myself. And I praise you for who you are, that you love me so much that you died for me. Come into my heart. Forgive my sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.